0: Welcome to the Converge Community Church Podcast, where we provide for you the previous Sunday morning sermon. And now, without further ado, may the Holy Spirit minister to your heart as you hear the preaching of God's Word. Well, good morning again. It's so good to be with you, to be together as the church, and to worship together, and to hear from God's word, we are now in the book of Matthew, we, the chapter four, and we're going through this series. We started in chapter one. We're going throughout the whole book of Matthew, and it is going to take some time, uh, maybe a year or so. So just kind of buckle your buckle yourself in, and we're we're for a long ride, but it's it's a good one. This is this is going to be a great series in the book of Matthew if I've been blessed by it so far, and especially this morning, uh, the chapter four, what we're going to look at is it's a challenging section, but it's really good. It's, it's a way that uh, God can minister to our hearts. The question that I want to first ask is, as we're looking through these chapters, is why did Matthew decide to include these particular events? The point is this, is Matthew only has a limited amount of resources to use. He only has so much parchment. Uh, It was very expensive back in that time. He only has so much time and so why does he write the events down that he does? Why does he record these particular events and, and the order that he puts them in? Another way of asking it is, uh, how does he begin and how does he end? How does he begin, how does he end, and, and what's the path that he takes to get there? And when you think of, you know, asking those questions and and trying to answer them by reading the whole book of Matthew, I think you come down to this main idea. And this is what us pastors, as, as we've studied it and talked about it, this is what we came up with. It's what I would call a working main idea. So it might change a little, we might adjust it, but it's this, it's the call to follow the promised King into his kingdom follow the promised king into his kingdom. And and we're beginning to see this already, even when you open up the very first chapter and Matthew gives a genealogy that starts with Abraham to Jesus. And through that, we hit David, King David, in that genealogy. And what's important about Matthew emphasizing King David is that it was because King David was given a covenant promise by God, a covenant promise that he would have a son on the throne forever. Wait a minute. What? Forever? Yeah. How in the world is God going to accomplish that? Well, we go through the Kings, we go through the genealogy and in the end it rests And so what Matthew is pointing out is that Jesus is the rightful heir. He's going to be the one that this promise comes to fruition. It'll be through Jesus. And so we see that in the first chapter. In the second chapter, we we see this birth that takes place. and, And the main character is Joseph, who's in the line of the Davidic kingship, and we see what takes place is this other king, King Herod, wants to destroy this king. And what takes place? Well, his plan is thwarted, isn't it? That the plans and the powers and the kingdoms of this world cannot thwart the plans of God. God's kingdom is coming, and no other power can thwart it. And so we see that in chapter two. And then we see in chapter three, one who's going to pave the way for this kingdom. And what's his message? This is John the Baptist, right? The one who's going to pave the way for this kingdom. His message is repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then he talks about how there is one to come. Yes, yes, we're going to baptize You're going to confess your sins and baptize. And this is a a confession or a way that we can repent to change our ways and be prepared for this coming kingdom. And John the Baptist says this, but there is one to come that will baptize. It's going to be a greater baptism. He's greater. He's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He's coming. That's in chapter three. And then the rest of chapter three, what takes place? Jesus comes, he approaches John the Baptist and John the Baptist is like, this is it. This is him right here. Jesus says to him, I need to be baptized by you. John the Baptist goes, what? Are you crazy? I baptize you. You need to be baptizing me. Why? Because we know Jesus' baptism is greater than John's and Jesus says, no. To fulfill all righteousness, I need to be baptized by you. And so John baptizes him. And when he comes out of the water, the heavens open. The spirit, the Holy Spirit comes down like a dove and rests upon Jesus. And then a voice from heaven, the voice of God, the father says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So there's this way that Jesus is anointed with the Holy Spirit. The this Holy Spirit rests upon him and there's a declaration from God the Father declaring who Jesus is. So this is a powerful moment. And in a way, what's ta- happening here is, is Jesus is being prepared for his ministry that's about to take place. Jesus is going to go on this three-year ministry pointing out who he really is. And he's and what he's going to accomplish for us. And it starts with with the gospel that he's going to preach, and that is the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. So Matthew's telling us about this preparation when this happens, when this begins, when that ministry starts. But before we get to that ministry, there's one more thing that has to take place. Jesus is going to be led into the wilderness and be tempted by the devil. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. The question is this, what in the world is going on here? Why, why is this happening? Why, why does Matthew place this? What's the importance of this event? And so here's the answer to that. This is why it's so important. It's that Jesus Defeats temptation. This is what God wants us to know: is that Jesus defeats temptation by rightly handling the Word of God. By rightly handling the Word of God, Jesus defeats these temptations. Okay. So before I read this passage to you, uh, this is there's a lot in this section. That we can cover uh, those who are were in my Sunday school class there's a lot we can talk about, isn't there? I mean we we were we were going for all I mean there was a lot of different questions we could have gone it uh, so many different directions so uh, because there's a lot there i've I've tried to make it as simple as possible, but there's some complicated things, so um, I pray that that we can. We can all move together in this and understand this in the best way that we can. So with that, before I read out loud this section to you, I want to give you kind of a big picture of what's going on. Because there's a theological truth that Matthew is unpacking within these temptations. And it's hard to see unless we, we kind of take a step back. So in these three temptations, Jesus is going to respond back with scripture. And it's very interesting that Jesus responds back specifically with the book of Deuteronomy. I think it's chapter 6, chapter 8, and chapter 9. Specifically, though, in the book of Deuteronomy, why does he respond back to these temptations with those particular passages? Um, In order for us to answer that question, we have to get a broad view of Deuteronomy and what Deuteronomy is all about. So the book of Deuteronomy, uh, it's basically the second law. That's what the word Deuteronomy means, the second law. And it was given to the second generation of these Israelites who were in the wilderness traveling for 40 years. Wait a minute, how many days was Jesus in the wilderness? We're going to read that here in a minute. 40 days. The Israelites were in the wilderness for 40 years. There's this parallel there. There's this callback that's taking place that God wants us to understand. And, and it basically comes down to this. Israel, when when they uh, were t- taken out of Israel, or I mean taken out of Egypt, they were, pr- they were. Uh, promised to be a nation and to have this land flowing with milk and honey. And God leads them to the land. And there's going to be these two spies that go out. They check out the land and they come back and they say, yes, this is fertile ground. This is amazing. It's an amazing place. But here's the problem. Uh, The people that are on that land, man, they are big. They are strong. They are tough. Now God promised them that land. He said, "Go into that land, take the land. I will be with you." Well, when the Israelites hear uh, these two spies that come back, when they hear what these you know what what these uh, enemies were like, they're like, "No, we're good." You see, they rejected the word of God he said we're good. And so basically because of that God says, "Okay, you don't want to trust me and go into the promised land which I promised you. You're going to wander the wilderness for 40 years. And until that generation gets wiped out, until that generation dies. And that's exactly what takes place. They wander the wilderness for 40 years. And so the ge- second generation now comes up. Okay? The second generation comes up and now God goes to them and says, all right, we're about to enter the promised land. I'm going with you. It's going to be a challenge. It's going to be tough. They're strong. They're powerful, but your God is with you. So as you go into this promised land, let me remind you of who I am, the commands that I've given you, and where your parents failed. <laughs> you guys like that, right? Children, you, you like that? Like, oh yeah, we know where our parents failed. God's saying, no, no, let me remind you where your parents failed. Where your parents failed, I'm warning you, don't fail in the same way. You see, Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy. The words that were spoken by God reminding the second generation where the parents failed. So here's what I'm pointing out here. Here's, here's the main idea, or here's, here's the, what I want you to, to grab here, is where Israel failed, Jesus will succeed. Where Israel failed in being faithful to the word of God, Jesus will succeed. How do we apply that to ourselves? Where we fail, where we fall short, Jesus will succeed. That's the theological truth that's that's taking place here that Matthew is trying to communicate as he gives us This event in Matthew. So let me read this for us, Matthew chapter four, verses one through eleven. Please follow along with me. Oh, you know what? Uh, We've been trying to do this as a as a um, as a as a good habit um, to honor the Word of God. Would you stand with me if you can? Would you stand with me as I read this to you? Matthew chapter four, verses one through eleven. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, Angels came and were ministering to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you speak through your word? Would you speak to us? And would you remind us, Lord, through it, that your word, your word is truth? Lord, may we hear it and follow it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you may be seated. So, uh, Thad, I, I kind of, um, this probably isn't perfect how I had this and how it's presented. So here's, here's I called it the first scene, but um, I, I kind of changed it up. So this is basically the intro- introduction. You can throw this up, Thad. So this is the first scene, but it's basically one whole scene, and we're going to look specifically at three different temptations, okay? So here's how it's all set up, though. The whole scene is that the king goes into battle, all right? Verse one, Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So in verse one, we already have this surprise. I think there's probably at least two surprises in these 11 verses. Here's the first one that I see. And it's that the spirit who leads Jesus, um, it's, it's that the spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted, to be tempted by the devil. Now think about that for a minute. You see, we, we talk about being led by the Spirit. We want to we hear from the Holy Spirit. We want to be led by the Holy Spirit. We talk about this as Christians all the time. And I don't know about you, but when I read this verse, I think to myself, hmm, I don't know if I really want to be led by the Spirit if he's going to lead me into temptation. I mean, this is dangerous waters. And so it's kind of a surprise that the Spirit would lead Jesus into temptation, into trials, into trials into struggles. But we see that here. And you know, in some ways, uh, other scriptures talk about this concerning us as believers and what takes place. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. James says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith through these various trials, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So here's the point. Whatever it is that you're facing today, the trials, tribulations, the temptations that you're facing today, they're not by accident. Perhaps, perhaps it's the spirit leading you to that moment or leading you to that place. And the question is this, will you be faithful? As a believer, as a follower of Jesus Christ, will you trust in the Lord in that dark time or that trying time? So let me give you an example of, of what this looks like just in my own personal life. Um, trying to, it applies in so many different ways, but um, so my oldest is 19. He's, he's um, going to Michigan State, you know, Michigan State University. And um, you know what though, growing up, uh, I questioned, you know, where is this kid going to go? When it comes to education and within me, there was a fear. I didn't want him to go to a state school. I had a fear of losing my son, that he would walk away from the Lord. And I mean, there'd be nights that I would wake up in the middle of the night and think through that and, and pray the Lord, what am I going to do? And, and, and the question is this, am I going to trust in the Lord Am I going to trust in uh, what he has called us to do? And that is to raise him up in the ways of the Lord. You know, he came to church and he served and he engaged and he uh, was taught the word of God. And, and there's a proverb that promises, if you raise your child up in the ways of the Lord, he will not go astray. And so I had to, I had to trust in the Lord in that. And so when this opportunity came, Michigan State University. It's like, am I going to trust in the Lord? As I saw my son, you know, trust in the Lord throughout his, his days with us, will that continue on? And I had, a, I had a trust in him in it. You know what? My son has to trust in the ways of the Lord now. Because, you know, there's a lot of trials and temptations up there. And so even with my son, it's the question with him, right? He's being tempted now. I feel like the Lord's led him there. And it's this question with him. Is he going to take, uh, put his faith in the Lord and put his faith in the word and combat those temptations as well? You see, the Lord puts us in these temptations all the time. He leads us much of the time through the Spirit He'll lead us through these difficult times. But here's the wonderful thing. We have the Holy Spirit with us. We can face these temptations. We see Jesus has the Holy Spirit, right? The previous section in chapter three, the Spirit came down upon him. And now the Spirit's leading him into this difficult time time, the Spirit's going to see him through. The Spirit can see us through as well. Will we put our trust in that? Not only that, though, um, when it comes to these temptations, so let me share with you these three temptations. The first one, temptation one, and it's this question, is God's word enough? This is the first temptation. Is God's word enough? Matthew 4, uh, verse 2 and 4, it says, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So notice that the devil starts by going to probably the most weakest point of Jesus, right? Jesus has been fasting for 40 days and it says, the scripture says he's hungry. Now I don't know about you, but if I miss a meal, okay, I, I miss one meal in the day, uh, I'm hungry, right? And I'm it's like, I need food. Have you guys ever heard of the term um, hangry? Being hungry and angry. Like, I mean, man, missing a meal or two, boy, I can feel it. So here's Jesus for 40 days. He's fasting. And, and by the way, people, people have done it. Uh, one, Moses did it. Elijah, Elijah did it. Uh, but people even today, you can Google this. There's ways that you can fast for 40 days. I've never done it, but it can be done. Jesus did it. And here comes the devil and he tempts him in the place where he is weakest with this, with this hunger. And he says this in verse three, if you are the son of God, command these stone, stones to become loaves Of bread. And so that's the other interesting thing about this passage is he's questioning something, or he's challenging Jesus in a particular way. He's saying, if you are really the Son of God, prove it. So it's kind of this double attack. He's attacking at this weakness with this hunger, but he's he's also kind of questioning or challenging Jesus. Are you really the son of God? prove it. Here's the interesting thing though. If you just jump back to chapter three, this is exactly what the father told Jesus, right? And proclaimed, this is my beloved son. And here Satan is challenging it or he's using it in a way to make Jesus do something, Prove it that you are the son of God. Make these stones into bread. All right, so let's take a step back because this is exactly what was taking place for Israel. So we're going to see this in um, how Jesus responds back, but we also see this temptation with the Israelites. So here's the thing in Deuteronomy. So he's going to quote Deuteronomy, but in quoting Deuteronomy, if you read the full context, what God is saying, when he's making this statement, he's saying, remember what happened in the wilderness with your parents. Remember what took place. And this is what he describes. And this is in exodus. Okay. So the Israelites are wandering the wilderness for 40 years And they're hungry. They're struggling to get food. And God says, you know what I'll do for you? I'm going to do this miraculous work. I'm going to make it rain manna from heaven. Okay? And this is how he describes it. This comes from Exodus chapter 16, verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. And here's the reason why, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. To walk in my commands or not. Will they trust my word? So here's what he says. He sets this up. He goes, I'm going to let it rain manna for six days. And every day in the morning, it will be there. They collect it just for that day, collect enough for that day. And then the next day, there will be more. And on the sixth day, collect a double portion because on the, on the next day, you will rest. So on the sixth day, collect a double portion. And then there won't be any on the seventh day. All right? So he, he describes this for the Israelites. What do the Israelites do? It's like talking to a five-year-old, talking to children. It's like, listen to the words, hear my instructions, complete the instructions exactly how I've given them. Trust me. And the Israelites, what do they do? They collect more than what they were supposed to. They were trying to save up. And so the first day they collect a whole bunch of like, I'm going to feast on all this. What happens? The next day, what they collected and still have excess of rotted. It rotted. Hello, you don't need it. I'm going to supply these days. And so they, they don't get it right. They don't listen to the Lord. They don't obey him. And I think it's deep down because they don't really trust. They're not trusting in the word of God. And so Jesus, though, when he responds, this is how he responds. This comes from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. He says, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The Israelites, they, were, they only cared about their stomachs. They didn't care about the word of God. They didn't trust in it. Jesus responds by trusting in the, Lord, word, of, uh, trusting in the word of God and quoting it as well. So let me ask you, Is God's word enough? Is God's word enough or do you take matters into your own hands like the Israelites did? Do we trust in the word and what he has promised? Or do we go, you know what? I'm just going to ignore that. I'm going to try it my way because I think my way might work a little bit better. I'll be far more certain of the outcome if I take control and do what I think is best. Friends, we do this all the time throughout our lives. Is God's word enough? So that's temptation number one. Here's temptation number two. And it's this question, does God really care? Does God really care? Matthew 4, verses 5 through 7. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord, your God, to the test. So this is probably one of the most disturbing of the temptations. Uh, This is probably the second surprise that I saw here. And that is that the devil is using scripture to try to make Jesus uh, fall into this temptation. He's using scripture. Scripture. It's like, whoa, that's scary. Wait a minute, you mean the temptations that come aren't just blatantly obvious? No, sometimes they're subtle, sometimes they're tricky. The devil will even uh, manifest himself into a glorious angel in order to try to lead people astray. He also uses the word of God. Friends, to me, that's disturbing. It's a little, that's a little scary. What do we do with that? Well, I think one is we need to take, back, take a step back and think about, okay, wait a minute. We understand that people can use Scripture in the wrong way, right? We know this throughout history. We, we know this maybe by just turning on the TV. People make millions of dollars by mishandling Scripture Right to get people to, to give them tons of money, <laughs> so they can live, you know, a a, uh, a rich lifestyle. So we know the word of God can be mishandled. So it shouldn't be so, a, a big surprise that the devil can as well. So here's the interesting thing of how the devil mishandles this passage. So let's work through this. He quotes from Psalm ninety-one. Psalm 91 verse nine says, because, um, oh, I'm sorry. No, this is not the quote. This is just an example. Okay. Um, so leave it up there, Thad. But let me, let me uh, unpack this a little bit for you. So when it, when it comes to reading um, from the Old Testament or when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, we want to, um, take that verse and read the whole context of that verse. So when the devil actually quotes this verse, he's actually taking it into the full context of this psalm. This psalm, the whole psalm, is about God's protection. That God is our refuge. Say so. The example is this verse nine. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the most high, who is my refuge, here's the promise, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come near your tent. And so this Psalm 91 has verses like this throughout. I mean, this is what it's talking about. If, if you abide in the Lord, if you, are, if you follow after him, no harm will come to you. And Satan's using this and says, Jesus, you say that you're the son of God. You have this relationship with you, with him. You are his man. Prove it. Prove it. Throw yourself down off of this pinnacle and make God the father do a miraculous work in the most holy of holy of places, right? Where where the people congregate to see God and people will know then that you are the son of God. Prove it. You see what Satan is doing here is he is trying to make Jesus force God the father to act. trying to manipulate the father to act. So the devil's trying to manipulate Jesus into manipulating God, the father, and he's using scripture to do it. He's trying to force God's hand through the promises that God has given. This is very similar to what takes place in Deuteronomy. Uh, that I'm skipping around a little bit. Um, so again, Jesus is going to quote Deuteronomy, but in quoting Deuteronomy, he's pointing back to Exodus. So in Deuteronomy 6, Moses tells the people, uh, and this is what Jesus quotes, okay? You shall not put the Lord to, your te- to the test, right? That's what Jesus says. You shall not put the Lord to the the test. He's quoting that from Deuteronomy. The, the longer quote is, you shall not put the Lord to the test like you did back in Ma- uh, Mesa. Back in Mesa. So he's, he's reminding the Israelites, you shall not put the Lord to the test like your fathers did, like your parents did. Sorry, parents. Back in Exodus. And so this is what took place back in Exodus. Um, again, they're in the wilderness and the Israelites start complaining to Moses and demanding water. They're like, why in the world did you bring us out here? There's nothing out here. We're thirsty, man. It was far better in Egypt. It's like, really? When you were slaves? when you're being slaughtered when you're working yourselves to the bone yeah it's better and so here they are complaining and they're demanding Moses to do something about it make water and so Moses goes to God they're complaining again what am I going to do they're getting they're angry at me what's going to happen and so God responds back and he says Moses, strike the rock, strike this rock, and it will produce water for your people. And after that is done, then in Exodus chapter 17, verse seven and eight, it says this, and he called the name of the place Mesa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because, why? They tested the Lord. They tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? See, this is what they're basically deep down asking when it comes to this water. Is he really with us? We don't believe he's with us. Make water for us. Let us know that he's actually with us. And so, the parents failed. Fast forward to the second generation. God's reminding them, hey, Don't fail like they failed. Don't put your God to the test like that. And now, in our passage in Matthew, Jesus is quoting it. And he is faithful to it. I will not put my God to the test. You want me to manipulate him to force his hand? No. I will not put the Lord to the test. Friends, we need to be watchful of this as well. We need to be careful of this as well. And understand, and, and by that, we need to uh, do our best to understand Scripture so that we don't fall into the same temptations. Uh, here's an example from the New Testament. This is Peter warning warning us second Peter chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 he says but false prophets also arose among the people this is talking about during the uh, the Old Testament times just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destruct- destructive heresies even denying the master who bought them bringing upon themselves swift destruction and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. The way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Friends, be careful of false teachers. How do we do that? Beware of false teachers applying the word of God. How do we do that? You know, let me sit... <laughs> This is like a. a um, this is a shameful plug, you know what? What we try to do on Sunday mornings and for the Sunday school class Scripture discovery is how to rightly study the Word of God, and to give you principles, ingrained principles into you, so that when you're reading the Word of God, whether it's at home or when you're hearing the preached Word. Here, that you would be able to measure for yourself if it's the truth, if it's really from the word of God or not. You see, I don't want you to take my word for it. You need to, you need to challenge me as well. What I am proclaiming to you and how I'm applying the scripture and how I'm I'm quoting it, is it in context? Am I rightly dividing the word from, from heresy? You see, we want you to have the skills and the tools so that you can be prepared for false teachers and false heresies and, and uh, misapplying the word as well. Whether it comes from, hopefully not from this pulpit, but from the world, from, you know, from other places. All right, here's number three, temptation number three. And it's this question, who will be your God? Who will be your God? This comes from verses four through 10. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord, your God, and him only shall you serve. Now this temptation is, a, I think, actually a lot different than the previous two temptations. The previous two, remember the devil started with this phrase, if you are the son of God, both temptations, that's, that's what he's kind of poking at Jesus with. If you're really the son of God, prove it in these ways. This one's totally different. And um, so my brother Todd, sitting over here, we were talking about this passage earlier in the week and I, and I appreciated how he, how he described this. He said, it's as if the devil's pushing in all of his chips. <laughs> and I like that. I think that's a great picture of what it seems like the devil is doing here because the other two temptations did not work. And now he's just, he's going for it all. He's, he's going all in here. And so he takes them to the kingdoms and he's like, I will give you all of this. All you have to do is worship me, but I will give you all of this. Just bow down to me. You see, this is the devil. He's tempting Jesus with all this world has to offer. All these luxuries. The devil is tempting Jesus by offering them these things without having to go through the difficulties, the trials, the sufferings, the death, the crucifixion you know what? I'll take care of you, Jesus. Just bow down and worship me and I'll give you these glories. I'll give you these kingdoms. And you don't have to go to the cross. It will already be given to you. You can avoid that. And how does Jesus respond? Again, he goes back to Deuteronomy. And he makes that statement, you shall worship the Lord, your God and him only shall you serve. And so he's going back to Deuteronomy chapter six. And I want to read this to you because I think this is very interesting. This is verses 10 through 13. Remember again, he's, this is the father preparing the second generation to go into the promised land. And this is what he says. And when the Lord, your God brings you into that land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob, to give you with great, listen to this, listen, how he describes the land with great and good cities, ooh, great and good cities that you did not build and houses full of good things that you did not fill and cisterns that you did not dig and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, here's the warning. Look, look at what, how he describes that land with, with all these great and wondrous and glorious things in the land that they can have their fill, that they can enjoy He says, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him shall you serve and by his name you shall swear. You see the luxuries of this world, the prosperity of this world can cause us to forget about God and turn our attention to the idol's, of this world. Sure, the things of this world, we can enjoy, right? The Israelites were given all these wonderful things, these cities and to to be full in their, um, to enjoy. But I think it's very important to remember these things. Number one, the things of this world, the treasures of this world will not last. They will not last. They are fleeting. Later in Matthew chapter six, we're going to see Jesus explain this. This is cha- uh, chapter six, verse nineteen. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor tre- nor rust nor nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is there. Your heart will be also. Where are you storing up your treasures? Where are you finding peace and comfort? What are you trusting in? Is it in the glories of, that have been given to us in this world, they are blessings, right? We can thank God for them. But is that what we are trusting in? Or are we trusting in the Lord? And so here's the call for us. The call is to trust in the word of God. To trust in the word of God and make war. Make war against sin. You see, this is what we're seeing throughout all three of these temptations. What is it that we're putting our trust in? Is it the things of this world? Is it, is it to satisfy our hunger? Is it to bring ourselves glory? Or are we trusting in the word of God? Ephesians chapter six talks about the full armor of God. How do we do battle, right? How do we do battle? Ephesians chapter six says, put on the full armor of God. And he goes through the list of the armor and he ends with verse 17. He says, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is, what's the sword of the spirit? Which is the word of God. Think about that. Jesus, the Holy Spirit, goes into temptation. Yes, the spirit leads him into that temptation, but the spirit is with him. The word of God is with him. And Jesus uses it as a sword to defeat the evil one and the temptations. Friends, we are to do the same thing. When the temptations come in our lives, when trials come, when doubts come, when we question, when we're tempted to to do things and make things happen on our own strength, remember the word of God. Speak it. Remind yourselves of it. Speak it out loud to combat the evil one and the temptations that he brings. All right, so let me, let me close with this. And this is another um, uh, application. Okay, so the first application is trust in the word of God and make war against sin. But here's a question that comes that we must address. And it's what do we do when we fall into temptation? Or what do we do when we fall in temptation? You see, we're not perfect like Jesus. We're more like the Israelites back in the wilderness We've fallen, we'll continue to fall. What do we do then? Here's a wonderful thing to remember. This comes from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. It says this, Since we have a great high priest, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. We see this played out in these temptations. In every respect, he has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, That we we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Brothers and sisters, let us remember that Jesus faced temptations like we have faced temptations, that he can identify with us in that way. Let us also remember that he had victory over those temptations. And that his victory means our victory. The call is to put our trust in his sacrifice for us. To put our trust in the cross. That what he accomplished for us, what we couldn't accomplish, he accomplished for us. And so let us with confidence in that truth approach the throne of grace and know That we're forgiven. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we can gather. We thank you, Lord, for for what Jesus has accomplished for us. And it is displayed here, it is displayed here in these temptations. Lord, where Israel failed, where we fail, Jesus succeeded. Where we fall, fell short, Jesus fulfilled for us. Lord, that is the wonderful truth of the gospel. And so may we not trust in our own efforts and our own strengths, but may we trust in Christ, and what he has accomplished for us on the cross. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's sermon. Make sure you come back next week to hear the next message in our series.